Blog Talk Radio.
Welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abadami Azikwe. Today is Sunday, uh, May 1st, uh, 2022, uh, May Day International Workers' Day. And uh, we're broadcasting uh, live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit, uh, just coming uh, back uh, from a May Day uh, commemoration in downtown Detroit, uh, organized by the Moratorium Now Coalition, in which yours truly, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, co-chaired. And uh, later on in our program, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the commemorations held around the world uh, for uh, May Day International Workers' Day. The war in Ukraine is continuing while the United States administration has pledged another $33 billion in assistance to uh, the government in Kiev. An Ethiopian-American journalist uh, has accused the Western media of supporting the forces seeking to destabilize this Horn of Africa state. And Sudanese uh, Democratic forces have reiterated uh, to the international community that they will not relent until the military is removed from power uh, in the oil-rich state. In the second hour, we look in depth uh, at the deal between the United Kingdom and Rwanda over the resettlement of migrants. Finally, we review some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day uh, around the world. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll move into our musical interlude uh, with uh, the music of Tony Allen from the album entitled No Accommodation for Lagos. shop, you go to bed. Which kind of enjoyment do they enjoy now? How you get wife? <laughs> well, because life hard. Though. Oh, now because of accommodation. Down. 
enjoyment, no day inside. No accommodation. If you not talk through me, I go talk through.
so he happen. Not so I bet he Not so he happen. Every day, 
Now so I can see him every day. Now so he can happen every day. Now so I see him. No, I come on day one. No, I come on day
Africa, the country of freedom, Africa, the country of percussion, Africa, the country of where you have different Africa is a very, very beautiful land where you have black beautiful people with shining colors. Brown, black, yellow. And what do you think of? Black mind, black flower. Africa. Them, we are talking about the power, the vibration, and the forces. African music is music that moves you and me because it's full of breathing.
But there is road safety Which you and me must keep This is a law Because let's die a good die Good death is very good Not dying on the road So brothers and sisters You children Take care on the road So look to the left You got to look to the right ah. You got to look to your front Oh yeah You got to look to the back Oh yeah, oh yeah, hey Take it easy
So brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, let's go together.
Welcome back, and uh, that was the sound of the legendary Tony Allen uh, from the album No Accommodations in Lagos. Uh, Tony Allen from the West African state of the Federal Republic of uh, Nigeria, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, the worldwide radio broadcast, and uh, we are here on Sunday, uh, May 1st, uh, May Day. International Workers Day, and of course, uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of our program, and uh, we hope uh, that uh, you are having and will have had a great uh, International Workers Day, and uh, we're going to right now move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Ali's story, of course, deals with uh, May Day, International Workers' Day. Uh, it has been observed uh, throughout uh, the international community in Africa, Asia, Latin America, <clears throat> in um, the Horn of Africa nation of Eritrea, the National Confederation of Eritrean Workers uh, held a May Day commemoration uh, earlier today. 
International Workers' Day has been observed uh, for the 132nd time at the international level and for the 31st time at the national level. At the ceremony in which ministers, seniors, PFDJ officials, and others took part, Mr. Takesti Badi, General Secretary of the National Confederation of Eritrean Workers, indicated that May Day is a day in which workers voice uh, their political, social, economic, and cultural existence and commended the commitment uh, the Eritrean workers demonstrated in national affairs. Praising the awareness, the organization, and flexibility, the Eritrean workers and managing staff demonstrate to address the challenges encountered due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Mr. Walde Jesus Elisa, Director General of Social Welfare at the Ministry of Labor and Social Affairs, Social Welfare called for turning challenges to opportunities and strengthen organizational capacity. And Mr. Walde Jesus also expressed readiness that the Ministry of Labor and Social Welfare will stand alongside the National Confederation of Eritrean Workers in all its endeavors. Uh, International Workers' Day is being observed for the 132nd time at the international level and for the 31st time on the Eritrean uh, national level. In other news, uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov pointed out in an interview with Italy's uh, media broadcaster that Western media outlets had distorted his remarks on the risk of nuclear war, uh, which did no credit to Western journalism. Lavrov said, I was asked about the threats that were piling up and how real the risk of nuclear war were. Uh, This is literally what I said. Uh, Russia has been working tirelessly to achieve agreements that would guarantee no one will start a nuclear war. It was us that urged our American colleagues to once again do what Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan did in 1987, that is, adopt a statement and confirmed that there could be no winners in a nuclear war and it should never be unleashed, Lavrov noted. We failed to persuade the Donald Trump administration to do as it has its own observations of the matter. However, the Joe Biden administration accepted our proposal. A statement on the inadmissibility of a nuclear war was adopted at a meeting between President Vladimir Putin of Russia and Joe Biden of the United States in Geneva in June of 2021. I would like to emphasize that it was done at our initiative, he added. The Russian top diplomat noted that the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council had adopted a similar document at Moscow's initiative in January. After I said it, I called for exercising maximum restraint and refraining from from feeling uh, the relevant risk. I referred to a statement by the President Vladimir Zelensky Uh, who had said uh, in February uh, that Ukraine had made a mistake by abandoning nuclear weapons and needed to obtain them again. Another statement was made by the Polish leader who expressed readiness to host American nuclear weapons, Lavrov said. He added that Western media outlets had failed uh, to ask any questions in those cases, as well as after the French Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian had pointed out that France also had nuclear weapons. And uh, from the war front uh, in uh, Ukraine, aviation of the Russian aerospace forces destroyed two S-300 missile systems and damaged two warehouses with ammunition and fuel on Ukrainian territory. That's according to the spokesman for the Russian Defense Ministry, Major General Igor Konoshenkov. He told this to reporters uh, earlier today. 
Operational, tactical, and army aviation of the Russian aerospace forces destroyed two Ukrainian S-300 anti-aircraft missiles in the areas of the settlements of Zaporozhye and Artemovsk. Two ammunition and steel warehouses in the areas of the settlements of Privolono and Shevchenko of the Zaporizhzhi region were hit, as well as 15 strongholds and areas of concentration of forces and equipment, he said. The Russian armed forces destroyed a hangar with weapons and ammunition delivered from the United States and the European countries to the Odessa region using Onyx missiles and destroyed the runaway of a military airfield, Konashenkov added. High-precision Onyx missiles destroyed a hangar with weapons and ammunition received from the United States and European countries at a military airfield in the Odessa region and also destroyed the runaway, he said. Seven military facilities of Ukraine were hit by high-precision missiles of the Russian airspace forces, including three warehouses of missile weapons and ammunition. Konashenkov added the high-precision air-launched missiles of the Russian aerospace forces hit seven military facilities of Ukraine, including four areas of concentration of forces and military equipment, as well as three warehouses of missile and artillery weapons and ammunition in the areas of the settlements of the Barazovo and the Donetsk People's Republic, Santino and Bar Benkovo in the Kharkov region, he said. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, in the Horn of Africa, a journalist elucidated that some Western media and U.S. officials have supported the terrorist TPLF accepting its fabricated ethnic divisions narrated at the expense of the reality on the ground in Ethiopia. Having a stay with the remixed morning show, journalist Hermela Aragawi uh, said that the northern conflict in Ethiopia has been erroneously reported by some Western mainstream media setting the truth aside. Based on this, the CNN, Amnesty International, and Human Rights Watch accused the government of Ethiopia and the Ethiopian people of doing wrong, standing by the side of the terrorist group. According to the journalist, these partisan Western media and their governments have been supporting the terrorist through They know that the conflict was purely provoked by TPLF itself attacking the northern command base in Tigray from the outset. She further stated that the terrorist TPLF and its allied media have been accusing the government of committing genocide in Tigray, but it is quite far from the reality. TPLF is an ethno-fascist group, an ethno-oriented gang born in 1975 to overthrow the communist government, the Derg, the help of the United States, and mercilessly ruled Ethiopia for close to three decades as a lot of voices were muffled. That is why the terrorist group has had strong relations with the State Department and the head of the World Health Organization number, she added. She succinctly requested, saying that does any country graciously accept when extraordinary inhuman activities performed in this territory? The answer is straightforward, no. So any nation has to stand by the side of the Ethiopian and Eritrean governments and the respective citizens of the two. The CNN and the New York Times and others know what the truth in Ethiopia is, but they do not want to face the reality, especially a nation that houses close to 115 million intertwined people. is not an easy country, and isolating the people using ethnic division is very unacceptable, the journalist underlines. 
And uh, finally, in regard to the situation in the Republic of Sudan, the solution to the political crisis in Sudan depends on ending the military coup of October the 25th. This is according to the Forces for Freedom and Change. They told this to Western envoys who met with them just this last past Thursday. Special envoys from France, Germany, Norway, the United Kingdom, the U.S., and the European Union on Thursday met with Sudanese stakeholders, including the military-led Sovereign Council, the Sudanese Revolutionary Front, the SRF, the National Consensus Groups, and the Forces for Freedom and Change, the FFC. The European Union and Troika diplomats expressed their support for the tripartite process to end the political crisis and encouraged the Sudanese parties to speed up talks to restore the civilian-led transition. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service that is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 and has since then published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. And if you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you would like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, May 1st, uh, May Day, International Workers' Day, 2022, all you need to do uh, is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash panafricanjournal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash panafricanjournal. And we'll take a break, and we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Rotary Connection, uh, born in Chicago uh, during uh, the late 1960s, uh, featuring Sidney Barnes and Minnie Ripperton, uh, the entitled Paper Castle. And uh, we're going to listen to an audio clip uh, on uh, the history of the so-called Haymarket Riot, uh, which uh, spawned uh, International Workers' Day beginning in 1886. Uh, let's listen uh, to this piece uh, focused on Lucy Parsons, uh, one of the key players uh, in the workers' movement uh, during the late 19th and early 20th century. Let's listen in. The day will come when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you are throttling today. As the final words of condemned anarchist August Spies sparked a labor revolution, a dynamic leader emerged. In the late 19th century, Lucy Parsons, the embodiment of a disenfranchised America, challenged the racist, sexist, and capitalist society surrounding her. Her radical form of activism shaped class consciousness in Chicago and the world by exploring and enlightening America's working class to the ways of revolutionary politics. like common workers as they encountered labor struggle, explored their rights, and exchanged ideas for a better future. Few events in history have challenged the basic rights to assembly, free speech, press, and the right to a fair trial as directly as the 1886 Haymarket Affair. The 1886 Haymarket Affair was a result of years of struggling for proper working conditions. During the period leading up to the riot, workers encountered fierce opposition from business leaders and government authorities who limited their constitutional right to assemble and protest poor working conditions. So how did a band of rebels, including Lucy Parsons, affect such change in history? Come all you workers and hear what I say, the trying to plunder the eight hour day, won by our forebears in the bloody campaign. So rise up and be in the struggle again. Most workers were working 10 to 12 hours per day, 6 to 7 days per week. Factories were filled with rats, disease, and dangerous machines. Child labor was common. The government had passed an 8-hour workday law, which it failed to enforce. Tension in America was building with individual workers having no power. The only hope these workers had was to team up and collectively fight for their rights a critical leader emerged named Lucy Parsons. Little is known about Lucy Parsons. She was a woman of color born in Texas and thought to be of Mexican, Native American, and African American descent. Her exact birth date is unknown. After leaving Texas, where her interracial marriage to Albert Parsons was not recognized, the Parsons landed in Illinois. She had two children. Her most recognized name was Lucy Gonzalez. Most believe she had been a slave and suggest this is why she fought so strongly for better labor rights. So how did Lucy, her husband, and her accomplices become such instrumental figures in history? Albert Parsons became involved in the railroad strike of 1877 by urging peaceful protest. In 1883, the Parsons helped begin the International Working People's Association but it was their central role in the Haymarket Fair that solidified their place in history. The Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions declared May 1, 1886 to be the start of a nationwide labor movement demanding the eight-hour day. 
Albert and Lucy Parsons helped organize the largest rally in Chicago by marching with 80,000 workers up Michigan Avenue. On May 2nd, Albert left to set up rallies in Ohio while Lucy organized another peaceful rally of 35,000 people. On May 3rd, policemen shot at picketing workers at the McCormick Reaper factory plant, killing at least one man. In response, a protest meeting was planned for the evening of May 4th. 20,000 people were expected, but most plant speakers did not show, and only 2,500 people attended. Eventually, two last-minute substitute speakers stepped in. They were Albert Parsons, just returning from Ohio, and Samuel Fielden, arriving from a women's sewing meeting organized by Lucy Parsons. They climbed onto a wagon and addressed the small, peaceful crowd. Near the end of Samuel Fieldson's speech, with only about 200 people remaining, 176 policemen called for the meeting to disperse. At that moment, a homemade bomb flown into the ranks of the police, and the police shot wildly on the crowd, killing some of their own men. Seven or eight policemen died, and at least four meeting attendees. The next day, martial law was declared in Chicago and across the country. Police arrested a number of people. Initially, 31 people were indicted for the murder of policeman Matthew Stegan. Most were not even at the rally. Eight prominent members of the labor movement were chosen to stand trial. The eight anarchists were Albert Parsons, Samuel Fielden, August Spies, Louis Ling, Adolf Fischer, George Engel, Michael Schwab, and Oscar Nieb. An outraged Lucy traveled throughout the country on a campaign for the release of her husband. She made impassioned speeches about the injustices of the trial. Despite her efforts, the jury found them guilty and sentenced Neeb to 15 years in prison, while the rest of the men were sentenced to death by hanging. Fielden, Schwab, and Neeb wrote letters to the governor for clemency, and their sentences were reduced to life in prison. Albert Parsons instead wrote a letter to America for justice, and only accepting liberty or death. Engel, Fisher, Spies, and Parsons were hanged on November 11, 1887. The night before, Ling committed suicide in his cell by detonating a bomb in his mouth. Hundreds of thousands attended the funerals for the anarchists. Five years later, Governor Altgeld pardoned the remaining anarchists from further punishment. Lucy was determined to continue the fight. In 1905, she became a founding member of the Industrial Workers of the World and began editing The Liberator, where she used the paper to fight for women's rights. She supported a woman's right to divorce and remarry, to have access to birth control, and for equal pay. She was often arrested for her beliefs. She would later spearhead a movement calling attention to the unemployed, hungry, and homeless. The 1915 Poor People's March of 15,000 unemployed women led by Lucy resulted in the federal government instituting unemployment and hunger assistance programs. In 1927, Lucy was elected to be on the International Labor Defense, where she actively aided in high-profile trials fighting for the civil rights of the victims of racism. She organized against the executions of Sacco and Vanzetti, immigrant labor activists wrongfully accused of double murder. After their execution, judicial reforms were put into place to review entire records in death penalty cases. She also defended Angelo Herndon, who faced 20 years in jail, for trying to organize black and white workers in Georgia. After his release, the Supreme Court determined the insurrection law violated union organizers' right to free speech. 
The ILD and Lucy were also involved in the infamous Scottsboro Nine trial. The case against nine black boys falsely accused of raping two white women on train highlighted the injustice of an all-white jury as not a jury of your peers. All defendants were exonerated. Lucy Parsons was once described as more dangerous than a thousand rioters. Upon her death in a house fire in 1942, the FBI and the Red Squad quickly removed all evidence of her writings. Despite Lucy's prolific writing and long life of activism, her name is mysteriously absent from the history books. All that remains is a small gravestone in the shadows of the Haymarket Martyrs Monument. Regardless, there is no denying she affected change and continues to impact our world today. After the Haymarket Affair, workers started to believe that they could achieve better working conditions and better lives if they worked collectively. After years of protest, this spark of an event ignited the labor movement. The labor movement burst into flames and rapidly spread across the nation and the world. Employers encountered an emerging strength in their workers demanding better working conditions. But for Lucy Parsons, a woman of color, the labor movement arguably would not have seen the successes it did. Safer working conditions, an enforced eight-hour day with a minimum wage and time and a half were established. Child labor laws are strictly enforced for those under 16. Unions are protected under labor laws established since the Haymarket Affair. Constitutional freedom of assembly and speech were strengthened. Unions gained strength in numbers and power. Many of those unions remain strong and continue to fight for the rights and protection of their workers. Lucy Parsons and her activists explored the landscape of labor struggles, encountered adversity and oppression, and exchanged outdated ideas for real change. The legacy of the Haymarket Affair is, out of tragedy, a stronger, healthier workforce and nation emerged. What would your world be like without Lucy Parsons and the Haymarket Affair? All right, welcome back. And uh, that was a audio uh, biography of revolutionary, black revolutionary Lucy Parsons. Uh, who was active, uh, we know, from the 1880s all the way up until uh, 1931 during the Depression. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for May 1st, May Day, International Workers' Day uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Um, And, of course, we'll take a break, and we'll be back with our next segment.
Welcome back. And um, that was uh, Jimi Hendrix um, from the soundtrack uh, to the movie Rainbow Bridge, uh, the tune entitled uh, Pally Gap uh, from the uh, Rainbow Bridge album. And uh, this is uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, May 1st, May Day, International Workers' Day uh, for uh, 2022. And as uh, we mentioned earlier, um, we were involved in hosting a May Day event in downtown Detroit at Grand Circus Park earlier today, uh, which had um, more than 20 organizations and artists uh, which addressed uh, the gathering. Right now, we want to move into another aspect of the labor movement, and that is mass incarceration for profit. This is an address uh, delivered uh, by yours truly, Abayomi Azikawe, the host of this program, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, special edition, editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Uh, this address was delivered at the First Unitarian Universalist Church in Detroit, located in the Midtown District. It was delivered on February 18th, uh, 2018, uh, during uh, the Sunday uh, service. It was the message of the day uh, from Abayomi Azikwe. Let's listen in. Abayomi Azikwe is the editor of the Pan-African Newswire and co-founder of several Detroit area organizations the Detroit Coalition Against Police Brutality, the Michigan Emergency Committee Against War and Injustice, the Moratorium Now Coalition to Stop Foreclosures, Evictions and Utility Shutoffs. He is a graduate of Wayne State University where he earned undergraduate and graduate degrees in political science, public administration and educational and administrative studies. Azikwe has worked as a broadcast journalist for many years and has hosted and co-hosted programs on several radio stations locally and in Canada. He has appeared on numerous television and radio networks, including Al Jazeera, CCTV, BBC, NPR, Radio Netherlands, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Belgian Private Radio, TBC Nigeria, and others. He has published numerous articles, pamphlets, and books on American, African affairs. He has traveled extensively in Africa, conducting field research on political economy and history. Please welcome this morning, Abayomi Azikwe. Good morning. I want to thank uh, the church for inviting me uh, once again uh, to this uh, service. And of course, I want to express my deep appreciation uh, to the First uh, Unitarian Universalist Church of Detroit uh, for extending yet another invitation uh, for me to speak uh, from this pulpit. Now, this institution uh, remains a vital source of inspiration for people uh, here in the city of Detroit uh, from various backgrounds, providing a platform for progressive ideas and social movements. This is very critical uh, during this time period in the United States. 
As the United States uh, faces profound challenges uh, in the areas of race relations, class exploitation, the denial of rights uh, to immigrants, to women and other marginalized groups in our society, there is also the threat of world war and other potential calamities. It is of utmost importance and necessity that those concerned with advancing society towards a sustainable peace and a social equilibrium have the opportunity to discuss these issues in a calm and reasonable fashion. Now, much of the discourse uh, within the corporate and governmental control media does not lend itself to finding solutions to the monumental problems we are grappling with in these contemporary times. On a daily basis, uh, we are bombarded with images of displacement, of dislocation, of injuries, of death, and destruction. Although our country, the United States, is touted as a, quote, peaceful, unquote, and, quote, prosperous, unquote, country, the wealthiest nation in the world, so we hear, there's much uncertainty among the people in this country. There's tremendous amounts of fear, trepidation, and social alienation. The regularity of mass shootings, which we saw just this last past week, the proliferation of domestic violence, racial antagonisms, misogyny, and other forms of bigotry contradicts the official narrative, which permeates the propaganda that is advanced uh, by the mass media, by the press, and especially the spokespersons for the administration in Washington, D.C. A cloud of routine avoidance of the real issues which concern humanity represents a dangerous phenomenon. We have heard repeatedly from the Oval Office of President Donald Trump that the economy is booming with unemployment being at its lowest level in history, this is accompanied by business confidence at new levels in regard to investment and job creation. Of course, these claims are not accurate. Even if they were, it would not automatically wipe away the tears of the family members and friends of those killed recently in the school shootings in South Florida. Such fabrications cannot provide food, clothing, and shelter to the tens of millions of impoverished people in this country and the billions more around the world. These delusions of grandeur cannot cover up the loss of life in the theaters of war, which the Pentagon is involved in throughout the Middle East, Central America, Asia, as well as Latin America and Africa. The millions who are suffering in our society from the rising tide of racism and all forms of oppression cannot gain solace from the continued enrichment of a small minority of the population, which shows blatant disregard and even contempt for the conditions of the downtrodden and the destitute. Even here in the city of Detroit, where we live, the conditions and concerns of the majority African-American population 
goes unheeded. The elusive emphasis by the powers that be is placed on making Detroit whiter and wealthier. When an assertion is made that African-American unemployment is at its lowest level in history, we must recognize this is another falsehood emanating from a distorted view of the origin and development of America as a nation state. Now, this is important in light of the fact that we are now celebrating African-American History Month, uh, which was started by Dr. Carter G. Woodson in 1926 as Negro History Week. And of course, in 1976, this was expanded to Black History Month. So we have to get our historical facts correct. In fact, Africans were the only people brought to the shores of the former British colony of Virginia and other such outposts during the 17th and the 18th centuries with a full-time job, waiting for them on the tobacco, sugar, and later cotton plantations of the East Coast and the South, a full-time job with no pay, working from sunup to sundown under the most horrendous and exploitative conditions. I would like to discuss the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which ostensibly freed Africans from enslavement in the United States in 1865 after the Civil War. Of course, this is a dubious amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and we'll discuss this in a few minutes. Now, this year represents the 150th anniversary of the later passed in 1868 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which was ratified uh, by the required number of states in 1868. Ostensibly, the 14th Amendment provided citizenship to African people who had been subjected to enslavement for two and a half centuries. Nonetheless, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was passed by Congress, was designed to essentially provide the same guarantees related to due process, to non-discrimination, providing the federal government and its three branches of the executive, the legislative, and judicial structures to enforce these measures and to take punitive action against any persons or institutions which sought to deny African people such inherent privileges, so they said. Just three years prior to the enactment of the 14th Amendment into federal law, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution was passed in January by Congress and ratified later in December of 1865. This measure was supposedly designed to legally free Africans from slavery. However, a careful reading of the 13th Amendment illustrates its dubious character, language which both frees people from involuntary servitude, yet making exceptions under the guise of criminal conviction and sentencing. The 13th Amendment reads in Section 1, and I quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime where, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States, nor any place subject to their jurisdiction, unquote. Then Section 2 of the 13th Amendment continues by saying, quote, Congress shall have power to enforce this article 
by appropriate legislation, unquote. Now, understanding this contradictory character of the 13th Amendment sheds light on the utilization of the criminal justice system and the perpetuation of bondage for the purpose of institutional racism as well as class exploitation. Why was it necessary, I ask, to include language which maintained involuntary servitude within the prison system? Any answer to this question must begin with the explanation that slavery, above all else, was an economic system. It is a mode of, of relationships and produ of production, which is designed for the maximization of profit, profit, profit for the few landholding gentry. It was the triangular trade and chattel slavery which provided the wealth that spawned the rise of industrial monopoly capitalism beginning in the 19th century. Since this is African American History Month, I want to quote briefly from two leading African historians who documented this transformative economic process during the 1930s and 1940s. These scholars and political actors were Dr. W.B. Du Bois of the United States and Dr. Eric Williams of the Caribbean island nation of Trinidad and Tobago. Du Bois, in his pioneering work entitled Black Reconstruction in America, an essay towards a history of the part in which black folk played in the attempt to reconstruct democracy in America from 1860 to 1880, this book was published in 1935 at the height of the Great De Depression, says that, quote, slowly but mightily, these black workers were integrated into modern industry. On free and fertile land, Americans raised not simply sugar as, as a cheap sweetening, rice for food and tobacco as a new and tickling luxury, but they began to grow a fiber that clothed the masses of a ragged world. Cotton grew so swiftly that 9,000 bales of cotton, which the new nation scarcely noticed in 1791, became 79,000 by 1800. And with this increase walked economic revolution in a dozen different directions. The cotton crop reached one half million bales by 1822, a million bales by 1831, two million by 1840, three million by 1852, and in the year of the succession of the 11 uh, Confederate states, stood at the then enormous total of five million bales per annum. Such facts and others, Du Bois continues, coupled with the increase of the slaves to which they were related as both cause and effect, meant a new world, and all the more so because with increased American cotton production and African slaves came both by chance and ingenuity, which spawned new miracles for manufacturing, and particularly for the spinning and the weaving of cloth, unquote. This same study continues noting in regard to our subject today that, quote, as slavery grew to a system and the cotton kingdom began to expand into imperial white domination, a free Negro was a contradiction. He was a threat and a menace. As a thief and, an, and as a vagabond, he threatened society. But as an educated 
property holder, he contradicted and undermined the slave system. He must not be. He must be suppressed. He must be enslaved and colonized. And nothing so bad could be said about him that did not easily appear as true to slaveholders. Now, nearly a decade after Du Bois penned Black Reconstruction, Eric Williams published another book entitled Capitalism and Slavery in 1944. This study focused largely on Britain, and it pointed out the direct trajectory of the profit-making system under slavery and the rise of modern industry. In Chapter 5 of the book, Williams observes, and I quote, Britain was accumulating great wealth from the triangular trade. The increase of consumption goods called forth by that trade inevitably drew in its train the development of the productive power of the country. This industrial expansion required finance. What man in the first three quarters of the 18th century was better able to afford the ready capital than a West Indian sugar planter or a Liverpool slave trader? We have already noticed the readiness with which absentee planters purchased land in England, where they were able to use their wealth to finance the great developments associated with the agricultural revolution. We must now trace the investment of profits from the triangular trade in British industry, where they supplied part of the huge outlay for the construction of the vast plants to meet the needs of the new productive process and the new markets." Unquote. William then goes on to chronicle the leading industries in Britain and their origins within African slavery. He discusses banking and finance. He discusses insurance, shipping, as well as manufacturing. These were all fueled by the profits accrued from the super-exploitation of Africans. Consequently, the economic system of slavery provided the necessary social ingredients to build a new mode and relationship of production, that being capitalism. Through the new system, mass production and international trade grew by leaps and bounds. This transitional period from chattel slavery to industrial capitalism required regimentation and mechanisms to enforce conformity with the priorities of the social order. After the independence of the 13 colonies in North America from London, slavery continued. Alongside the system grew the correctional institutions, which were designed to reinforce the status quo. Some of the first prisons were established in the northeastern state of Pennsylvania. However, as slavery expanded in the South, both law enforcement and correctional facilities took on added significance. From the 1820s to the 1850s, Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, itself was a major base for private prisons, which held and later transported Africans to the slaveholding areas of the South. Although President Thomas Jefferson signed into law provisions which prohibited the Atlantic slave trade in the U.S. in 1807, human bondage continued as a thriving enterprise. Interstate trade in African people was rapidly expanding as cotton became the major industry of production and export. A major institution designed to facilitate the domestic slave trade were private prisons. The opponents of this practice sought to have it regulated or outlawed 
as early as the 1820s, extending through the 1850s. However, the private prisons went on well into the period leading up to the Civil War from 1861 to 1865. Of course, there were many cases of Africans who were unjustly arrested and sent into slavery. This was the fate of a man named Gilbert Horton, who was arrested in 1826 and held for a month on charges of being a runaway slave. A congressman from Pennsylvania, Charles Minor, severely criticized the use of private prisons to service the slave system during Horton, as, as Horton was during this period. Horton was not released until he was able to provide references from upstate New York, which could substantiate that he was not a fugitive from bondage. Of course, there were many other examples of Africans who were illegally arrested and sent into slavery, or those who had escaped, recaptured, and sent back into slavery. In the aftermath of the end of slavery, the practice of private imprisonment also continued as a lucrative business. Even after 1877, uh, when the federal government withdrew its support for reconstruction in the South, a new system of social control and economic exploitation came to the fore. And this, of course, as well, was facilitated through the imprisonment of African people. Now, it would take a persistent civil rights movement would petition the courts for the implementation of existing constitutional amendments and laws starting in the mid-1950s through the late 1960s. This was accompanied by mass protests, boycotts, and urban rebellions that broke, up, broke open the U.S. political and social system. Further legislation uh, involving civil rights was passed in 1957. There was a 1964 Civil Rights Act, there was a 1965 Voting Rights Act, and a 1968 Fair Housing Act added additional measures reemphasizing what had already been enacted from Reconstru the Reconstruction era from 1865 to 1875. So there's been many, many civil rights bills, laws, and other measures ostensibly guaranteeing equality and self-determination in the United States yet it remains elusive. Now, after uh, the demise of Reconstruction, uh, there was, of course, another form of imprisonment. Many people were ensnarled in this process, which specifically targeted African Americans through racial profiling. Charges of vagrancy, robbery, assault, murder, and other crimes became reasons to lock up African Americans forcing them into slave labor projects led by private businesses. Untold numbers of people died on work crews which were composed of African Americans denied due process and the right to adequate legal representation. This same process continued openly well into the middle of the 20th century. So we're talking about between the late 1870s and all the way up to World War II, uh, this form of racialized uh, criminal justice uh, was a major factor uh, in the production process, uh, particularly in the South, but also in other parts of the United States. Now, 
the question of mass incarceration is still with us today. And I just wanted to give some statistics uh, in concluding uh, this presentation in regard to the disparate impact of the criminal justice system on African Americans and other communities of color. An article that was published in The Guardian uh, newspaper revealed uh, just uh, a year and a half ago that, quote, black Americans were incarcerated in state prisons at an average of five to one times of that of white Americans. And in some states, that rate was as high as 10 to one. The U.S. is 63.7% non-Hispanic white, 12.2% black, 8.7% Hispanic white, and 0.4% Hispanic black, according to most recent census figures. The research conducted by Ashley Niels, a senior research analyst with the Sentencing Project, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit that promotes reforms in the criminal justice system, highlights the disparity of sentencing, of serving time. New Jersey had the highest rate of disparate uh, incarceration with a ratio of 12 blacks to two whites, followed by Wisconsin, Iowa, Minnesota, and Vermont. So this problem is still with us today. Overall, we want to point out that within the United States itself, the majority of the people who are incarcerated in state facilities and in private prisons throughout the country, uh, if we combine the rate of incarceration for African Americans and Latinos, they constitute nearly 60% of those incarcerated inside of the United States. Now, what are the long-term implications uh, of mass incarceration and the privatization of prisons inside the United States? I feel very strongly that placing people within correctional institutions for extended periods of time only benefits the racist system in the United States. Although there may be an illusory sense of security as a result of mass incarceration, as a result of the escalating phenomena of deportations of immigrants, and also the denigration of incarcerated persons, it is not, in essence, curbing crime and enhancing social stability. Moreover, this system of criminalization of the nationally oppressed of the poor and the immigrant community is unsustainable. These conditions and existence within the U.S. further tarnishes the image of the country by exposing America as a bastion of repression and national discrimination. Slavery by any other name remains unjust. Involuntary servitude has no place within a democratic society. Methods of complete integration and the right to self-determination is the only solution to racial polarization and economic exploitation in the U.S. In recent years, there has been a resurgence of activism within the prison population. Inmates are increasingly engaging in hunger strikes, in work stoppages, in protests against the dehumanizing conditions they are living in on a daily basis. From Georgia to Florida, 
in California, these prisoners are signaling, are signaling to the broader society that change is inevitable. Whether this change will be peaceful is largely up to the ruling class and their government allies who benefit from mass incarceration, politically as well as economically. Eventually, the system will implode, endangering the inmates and the elites who hold them captive. Those of us who are concerned about eliminating racism and class exploitation must view the struggle of prisoners as an integral aspect of the movement to end, social, to end injustice in the United States and to bring about social justice. It is within our interest to tear down the existing system and to create a society that is generally based on equitable security and mutual understanding among people. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Abayomi Azikawe uh, speaking at the First Unitarian Universalist Church uh, during February of 2018 on uh, the topic of mass incarceration for profit, uh, which, uh, of course, the exploitation of African and oppressed labor within the prison system was a major source of profit-making as well as social containment and control in the United States. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment. I want a Sunday kind of love. A love to last past Saturday night. And I'd like to know it's more than love at first sight. On a Sunday kind of love Oh yeah, yeah. I want a, a, a love that's on the square Can't seem to find somebody Someone to care And I'm on a lonely road I need a Sunday kind of love I do my Sunday dreaming Oh yeah And all my Sunday scheming Every minute Every hour Every A certain kind of lover Who will show me the way In my arms Need someone Someone to enfold To keep me warm When Mondays And Tuesdays grow cold Love for all my
Monday, Tuesday, uh, Wednesday, a Thursday. companies prepared to meet Vladimir Putin's terms for Russian gas. Ukraine says Russia might attack Moldova. Is that a legitimate concern? The United States has passed a bill looking to help Taiwan regain its status within the WHO organization. And nearly 200 cases of severe liver severe liver inflammation have been reported on children across the world. Hello, you are listening to World Today, a news program from a different perspective. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. So, if you want to listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. Our top story: Some of the largest energy companies in Europe are preparing to use a new payment system for Russian gas. Gas distributors in Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Slovakia are planning to open ruble accounts at Gazprom Bank in order to satisfy a Russian requirement for payments in its own currency. Gazprom Bank, which is not under the sanctions by the European Union, is a Switzerland-based banking unit of Russian gas company Gazprom. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Alexander Dodge. Associate Professor with Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so Professor Dodge,、um, are you surprised when you see this latest development, where energy companies in Germany, Austria, Hungary, as well as Slovakia, are moving to comply with the requirements by Russia? 
I mean, both uh, yes and no. Uh, I think what's important to understand here is how natural gas as a commodity differs from other commodities such as uh, coal and oil. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, uh, natural gas to be exported either in the form of liquefied natural gas or uh, through pipelines requires a significant amount of investment in uh, infrastructure. Uh, pipelines, liquefied natural gas uh, terminals, mm. gas storage plants, uh, you name it. And uh, the, the infrastructure itself is not, uh, not very flexible, uh, liquefied natural gas being more flexible than uh, pipelines. And the inflexibility of the infrastructure creates uh, a set of uh, codependencies. Um, so uh, in terms of finding alternatives to Russian gas, Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few options uh, in these uh, regards. Uh, so, so to the extent that uh, you see energy companies uh, complying with the Russian requirements is, is perhaps a realization uh, of uh, that the current uh, natural gas infrastructure is, is unable to diversify away from um, uh, Russian uh, supplies. Mm, that's what re- does surprise mm-hmm. what what's, what does surprise me though is um, it also goes in the reverse that Russia is also just as dependent on European customers as European customers are dependent on it. Uh, you don't have um, many other options to export your natural gas to. The, I mean, at least for the fields that do export to uh, Europe, uh, Europeans are the the basically the only customer uh, for this uh, natural gas. So, so I thought that uh, the EU and Europe had a bit more uh, bargaining power in these regards. Mm. Uh, but maybe it's um, maybe it's a question of uncertainty on you know just how how far willing is um, is Russia willing to go to uh, to cut off supply? Yeah, and so, potentially lose that revenue. Mm. So we understand under the new mechanism by by the Russians, European companies would continue to pay Gazprom Bank for their imports in euros, actually. And this bank would then, at the request of those European companies, uh, convert euro-denominated deposits into rubles in another account which has been which have been opened in their names for onward payment to Russia. So technically speaking, do you think such a payment operation is vulnerable to any risks? Well, I mean, to some extent, this goes a, a little bit beyond my my expertise. But uh, what I can say is. Um, uh, I, I mean, you're talking about Rus- opening a, a bank account in a in a, mm-hmm. in a in a in a Russian bank and and being exposed to any future sanctions on that bank. Uh, so far, Gazprom Bank has been exempted from uh, from sanctions uh, compared to other uh, other banks, and. Uh, uh, so, so you run, the, but you run the risk that the political tide, in some sense, uh, changes. Uh, that uh, that there becomes more of a call for for uh, sanctioning uh, Gazprom Bank. Um, it becomes a, I mean, that's uh, that it becomes a clear identified loophole in the EU uh, sanctions uh, regime, uh, a, a glaring hole. Uh, and uh, the the question relies on you know whether there's a public tide of of uh, support for sanctions against the bank or not. 
Yeah, so I guess that's a very interesting and a big question regarding whether particularly the European Union will respond by slapping sanctions against that particular bank. So continue our discussion. Uh, actually, we understand among the EU members, some countries have decided to comply with the Russian requirement. Some countries like Poland and Bulgaria have outright refused to comply, and as a result, uh, Russia have suspended its gas supply to these two particular countries. And some countries like Italy are still evaluating their available options. So some uh, geopolitical or energy industry analysts say Russia is adopting a sort of divide and rule strategy on this particular issue. What is your take? Well, I'm not sure to what extent the divide and rule strategy would uh, would uh, really work uh, within the European context. Um, I mean, one thing that you have to understand is that the that um, uh, Europe in the last uh, decades has um, developed a, a key set of interconnectors uh, between uh, countries and has uh, basically Europeanized a lot of the uh, natural gas uh, system. So, to the extent that you deny exports to one country and allow exports to another country, well, how, how exactly would you stop German uh, util, uh, gas uh, traders from re-exporting gas imported into Germany to Poland or mm -hmm. to, uh, to Bulgaria? Uh, the other thing to also consider here is uh, there, there's quite a bit of difference in terms of um, uh, particularly in terms of where liquefied natural gas uh, terminals are located uh, and to what extent uh, different uh, EU countries have um, um, uh, uh, shaped their dependency on uh, natural gas. Uh, I mean, Poland has historically has always, in some ways, uh, been skeptical of dependency on Russian uh, gas imports, uh, developing a uh, LNG terminal to diversify supplies, um, uh, uh, choosing uh, to choosing you know to import from different uh, sources. Um, so, so, so Poland was was already reducing their dependence in the first place, and now they've had quite a lot of storage. So, 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 so it's more of a question of the fact that Poland is 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 refused to uh, to adopt the scheme, uh, and uh, and Russia is now trying to sanction against that. Uh, uh, but uh, but you know the in the end it, it comes down to well I, I don't think there's really a divide and rule I, I don't think uh, Poland is suddenly going to change its uh, its policies uh, at the moment. Uh, this is a I mean Poland has been quite vocal about its uh, opposition against the Ukraine war. Um, That's indeed so, true. you know, it, it really depends on geography. <laughs> mm -hmm. Indeed. So, I mean, obviously, a loss of Russian energy will cause some sort of economic pain to many European countries. But at the same time, uh, Russia will also, you know, stand to lose a lot of stand to lose a lot of uh, energy revenue, like oil revenue and, and natural gas revenue. By comparison, which side do you think is likely to suffer more economic pains? It's a question of time horizons, uh, mm. to the extent to which, uh, which can, you know, how fast can the EU um, uh, 
create alternative uh, supplies of energy. Um, I mean, right now we're coming into the summer months and natural gas is very seasonal. So the fact that uh, we're in the summer months and the EU has already developed a, a pretty big storage means that they have a, a lot more um, uh, flexibility in these regards. Mm. If Russia had uh, started to talk about uh, export bans in the winter, this would have been an entirely different uh, story. Uh, and you know, just simply as the you know as the customer, you you have other options. If you you know, we're talking about uh, electricity generation. Um, you know, gas is not the only player in town. You you also have uh, renewable energy, and you have um, uh, you know nuclear and and, and other options uh, in these regards. Uh, so, so on a time period, um, you know, if the EU was to significantly increase, for example, the amount of renewable energy uh, developments, if they were to put real, um, uh, real effort into that, uh, then, uh, then to that extent, the uh, Russia is uh, is uh, the weaker player in these regards because, again, they're quite dependent on the EU for uh, for exports. Mm. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I think uh, I, I think the point. EU has some uh, options uh, here uh, more than uh, Russia does. Uh, but you know, again, it's a question on you know how how far is uh, Russia willing to you know mm. they, they drive their country down a hole. Mm. Uh, so 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 you know the the sort of rational geopolitics um, uh, is uh, you know. Mm-hmm. This idea of, of rationalizing uh, geopolitics uh, um, takes attention away to towards, you know, the internal state mechanisms uh, happening within the country. Russia is a country that has seen down crisis, uh, you know, has seen crises and sanctions and these kind of things before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you know, the the, the tolerance towards um, towards uh, being put in a recession is, is completely different than the tolerance of, uh, you know, European countries to be put in a recession. Mm. So ultimately, I mean, speaking with a bit of a philosophical tone, do you think energy can be a card to stop a war or a military conflict? Uh, it's a difficult question. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's very much uh, depends. Uh, I mean, to some extent, energy is is also very much the cause of uh, of conflicts, and and uh, and you know you could also you know start to come towards uh, questions on accountability for the current situation we're in. I mean, the nat- natural gas uh, has, and the natural gas industry has um, clearly tried to. Uh, demonstrate itself as a both a transition fuel a fuel that's necessary for the a bridge towards uh towards uh, renewable energy and has also tried to um demonstrate itself as a new flexible kind of globalized uh energy supply where where uh you could get uh, natural gas from pretty much anywhere uh through lng terminals and it would be something uh, akin to a global oil market and obviously, uh, it seems that uh, that uh, natural gas has failed in both regards. Uh, and uh, so, uh, so, so that becomes, and it's created this dependency, mm-hmm. this codependency, which uh, which makes it difficult to really weaponize 
uh, without causing a certain set of distress in your uh, in your economy. And I think that's why a lot of um, the uh, EU uh, countries are complying. You know, you know, could be complying with the the uh, the, uh, uh, the the rules from um, Russia. Yes. Uh, just because simply of the you know of this uh, dependency. Um, okay. So uh, so so no, no I'm uh, not really sure. Uh, but I do hope someday that there will be a sense of accountability uh, for the current situation uh, that we're in. Um, and I think it also serves as a warning to to other countries in terms of thinking through to what extent uh, natural gas is this flexible global industry that it was made out to be. Mm. Thank you very much for your analysis and your opinion. Dr. Alexander Dodd from Norwegian University of Science and Technology. You are listening to World Today. I'm Dean Hunting Beijing. Stay with us. Russia is planning hybrid attacks to destabilize the government of Moldova, according to warnings by Ukrainian and Moldovan officials. The warning comes after a series of unexplained explosions occurred in Transnistria, a territory within Moldova, on Monday, which have raised concerns that Moldova is getting pulled into the war in Ukraine. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Kamal Makili Aliyev, from Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Sweden. Good afternoon. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, like Ukraine, Moldova is another former Soviet Union state and a non-NATO member country, a non-NATO member in Eastern Europe. Now, first of all, tell us about the relationship between Moldova and this uh, internal region called Transnistria. So, the Moldova has its own separatist conflict at hand in the uh, form as a former Soviet state. So it's one of those post-Soviet um, armed conflicts uh, over territories that have internal and external dimensions that have been plaguing the post-Soviet region for some time. There is a conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia. There are conflicts, uh, separatist conflicts in Georgia in Ukraine and also in Moldova. And the Transnistrian uh, conflict is special because it didn't have this kind of uh, outburst of violence that we have seen from the other uh, conflicts in the Caucasus or Eastern Europe or Soviet conflicts uh, during this uh, period from the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And until now, it was the one that can be called more stale. Uh, it has an initial violence during the phase, uh, during the beginning of 90s, when the dissolution of the Soviet Union happened, around 1,000 people have died. But after that, it went uh, into a more stable phase where we haven't seen the outbursts of violence. But Transnistria is a separatist region. It has uh, a very d difficult relations with uh, the rest of Moldova, Moldova as a state. Um, but it also is different in terms of uh, the direct communication that there is between Moldova and the de facto authorities in Transnistria, and even uh, an ability of the uh, people living in Transnistria to have uh, access to Moldovan services, market, and even a cooperation ex uh, that Moldova actually has externally with EU. Um, so that is the state of the relationship. 
Okay. So we understand Moldova is applying to join the European Union, but it has has not really indicated any intention to join the NATO. So with that in mind, do you think there is fundamental difference regarding Russia's how Russians perceive Ukraine and how Russians perceive Moldova? I think there is a fundamental difference between the Russia's perception of those two countries, Ukraine and Moldova. But I wouldn't say that it depends only on the willingness of uh, Moldova joining the EU, but no such indication towards NATO. Mm. Not only, not only that, but there is a very certain um, foreign policy that Russia pursues towards Moldova. Uh, and this one is connected to the internal political situation in Moldova and the connections uh, between this internal political situation and the polarized nature of the politics in Moldova, where there are uh, two wings. One is very much pro-Western, and the other one is uh, pro-Eastern or more Russian-oriented. And that also reflects on this internal conflict that Moldova has uh, with the separatist Transnistria, uh, but also an overall perception of Moldova from Russian side. So uh, it was the hostility that we've seen rising between the Russia and Ukraine um, would, wouldn't that couldn't be replicated in the relationship with um, Russia, between Russia and Moldova? But still, there is of course a different set of problems that Russia has in its uh, bilateral relations with Moldova, and they are connected to the willingness of Moldova to integrate into European structure as well. Hmm. So Ukraine has described Monday's um, blasts in Transnistria as a planned provocation by Russian security services. How credible is, is the narrative by the Ukrainian side? Or let me put it in another way, why has Ukraine made such a claim? This is a, a very difficult question to answer right now because of mm. the war that is uh, right now going on uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainian narrative can be 100% credible, or it can be absolutely non-credible, and it can be some, something in between as well. Because we, we see the uh, information warfare that is going on between uh, the, the two sides, and in such a situation, it's very hard to verify from the open sources if uh, the credibility of such claims. Um, the Ukrainian narrative is based on, right now, the hostilities that the Ukraine and Russia is engaged at and that uh, the Russian security services might have an interest in destabilizing the situation to tra in Transnistria to drag the Transnistria in uh, the conflict or drag its territory or the troops that Russia has stationed there uh, mm. and maybe even the troops that Transnistria has of its own uh, into the conflict. Uh, how credible is that? It's, it's very hard to say, but it has to be put in the context where Transnistria is, as a separatist region, is very much pro-Russian. It receives a lot of Russian support. Uh, but the differences between it and the eastern parts of Ukraine is that it is not fully controlled by Russia. So it, it has uh, a very pronounced degree of autonomy from both Russia and Moldova, so to say, um, in this kind of space in between and very much in betweenness. So saying that, that uh, this is necessarily the Russian security services uh, that have done it, it might be as credible as saying that someone inside uh, Transnistria uh, would like to uh, make the situation more tense uh, in an attempt to, for example, drag Transnistria into the conflict or drag it into 
the conflict with Ukraine, because Transnistria borders Ukraine. It's that part of Moldova uh, that has control over the most of the border of uh, Moldova with Ukraine. So, uh, but mm-hmm. pinpointing exactly the cause is almost impossible in this situation. Mm, indeed, I guess nobody knows for sure at this point. Now, last week, a senior military officer of the Russian side that the Russian army's plan to capture southern part of Ukraine would then open up a land corridor leading to Transnistria. Do you think this comment, which has been highlighted in some international media outlets, is necessarily telling us that that Russia has an intention to attack Moldova? Well, because of the Russian support of Transnistria and because of the ties and even some military troops that Russia maintains in Transnistria, uh, Russia doesn't have to attack Moldova at all uh, if it opens the land corridor somehow to Transnistria. It can, it can just link um, the Transnistria via the uh, corridors in the southern Ukraine uh, to its own armed forces and then use the territory of Transnistria to, for example, have a mili- military base there, support, uh, lo- establish logistics, etc., 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 so there is no need to, to have a direct attack towards the rest of the Moldova because there's already uh, enough, uh, so to say, control of Russia there in Transnistria. So the only question is opening this land corridor on, on the part of the southern uh, Ukraine. Attacking the rest of Moldova might also not be a very good idea because it's going to um, mm. cement the resolve and maybe bring even more resistance from the Western countries in the current context. So it might be a mistake to do that. But again, uh, in my opinion, I also said that before at this show that the Russian attack on Ukraine itself was a mistake. So we never know if it's actually uh, going to make another such a, such a move that might not be fought through. Okay, thank you very much for your analysis. That was Dr. Kamal Makili Aliyev. You are listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin Beijing. The U.S. House of Representatives has passed the legislation calling on the State Department to help Taiwan regain a observer status at the World Health Organization. The bill was already passed by the U.S. Senate last year, meaning it will now be sent to the White House to be signed into law. Taiwan is excluded from most global organizations because it is not recognized as an independent country. Beijing previously allowed Taiwan to attend WHO meetings as an observer. However, that particular status was stripped back in the year 2017 after the Taiwan administration refused to recognize the 1992 consensus. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Zhou Wenxing, Assistant Professor with the School of International Studies, Nanjing University. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you for having me here. So in your observation, Dr. Zhou, what do you think is the intention of the United States by trying to, by pushing ahead with this particular bill uh, to to try to help Taiwan regain this uh, observer status? Well, I think there are two main reasons. Um, The first one is strategic. And that is U.S. Uh, competition with China. Now, I have been studying U.S. Congress, Taiwan related to United Nations for a few years. Mm-hmm. I have combined and analyzed more than 1,000 Taiwan related United Nations cases 
proposed by two chambers of U.S. Congress in the past four years. And the conclusion is very clear that the worse U.S. China relation is, the more Taiwan related United Nations. So it is then not surprising to see uh, why there are so many Taiwan related United Nations cases uh, coming out in U.S. Congress in the recent years. Okay. And President Biden is very likely to sign this uh, bill into law. And the, the second one is that uh, U.S. We know that U.S. maintains a special relationship with Taiwan uh, under the so-called Taiwan Relations Act. The U.S. maintains unofficial but substantial ties with Taiwan. Yes. So this relationship actually is based uh, not only on strategic tech relations, but also on moral and uh, uh, value basis. So. I think U.S. intentions to help Taiwan gain or regain its observer status are mainly based on the two intentions. Mm. So, I mean, the behavior of the United States and Taiwan on this issue could be seen by Beijing as politicization of a health issue. But, I mean, the other way around, some people in the United States and in Taiwan could also accuse Beijing of politicizing Taiwan's participation or Taiwan's ties with the World Health Organization. What is your understanding? Well, I, first I think we should bear in our mind that Taiwan is part of China. Hmm. And most second, the most important thing and second is um, that the United States actually reached a consensus with China mainland on this issue back in 1970s and 1980s that Washington acknowledges that there is only one China and Taiwan belongs to China. So how could, it be, how could Taiwan be allowed to gain observer status in WHO or WHA which requires a statehood? And certainly uh, Beijing actually allows Taipei to regain its status uh, observer status in WHA under appropriate arrangements. Those arrangements uh, include most importantly that um, there's only one China, that both sides across the Taiwan Strait belong to one country, and that is China. But actually, the Taiwan authorities right now in Taiwan uh, didn't recognize, uh, they haven't recognized that uh, the... the, the um, uh, 1992 mm. consensus. Mm. But now uh, we see that the U.S. is pushing hard and rudely to help Taiwan to gain such a status rather than through uh, consultations and communications with Beijing. So in this case, who is politicizing this issue? And I guess the answer is very clear. It is the U.S. Okay. So, by the way, do you think Taiwan's actual access to international uh, medical and healthcare resources have been affected negatively after it was stripped of the uh, observer status back in 2017? Oh, well, this is a very um, technical question because mm. I am not a health expert. Okay. So I, I, I actually I don't know too much information about this, but uh, as far as I know, um, Taiwan's access to international health resources um, might be you know, affected to some extent, but not that substantially. Um, um, and uh, I noticed that there's 
uh, one more information, uh, which is very, uh, highly related to this question, is that Taiwanese Japanese health officials um, are allowed to attend some uh, technical meetings, okay. and they could uh, they also they, they could receive uh, some information and materials, uh, you know, to make sure that. Uh, there are people, um, those officials in Taiwan, should stay well informed uh, about global health issues, including uh, the COVID-19. Mm, okay. So under this expected uh, new law, what do you think the U.S. State Department will do exactly in, in order to help Taiwan regain that particular status? Well, actually, um, this is not the first time that U.S. congressmen um, mm. um, urge the president and the secretary of state to develop a so-called strategy to uh, help Taiwan to regain its observer status. Uh, we know that uh, during 2000 and 2008, uh, when the Republican uh, president uh, Bush was in power, actually uh, President Bush signed uh, several acts into law to uh, due to uh, SARS, you know, the outbreak uh, of SARS uh, during that time. So, and if we look into that, that part of history, and I guess um, there are two ways, you know, to help Taiwan. Actually, there are a lot of ways that U.S. could do, but I think there are two ways uh, they, would, they would definitely use. And the first one is that um, the United States and uh, also uh, the United States would ask its allies such as the you know, UK, Japan, Australia, uh, those those countries, as well as some partners, to impose pressure uh, on against the leadership of WHO. Mm. And I, I guess this is this is very you know the way that the United States has been used for for quite a long time. Mm. And the United States could I guess could even threaten the leadership of WHO that. It would stop, you know, contributing to this international organization unless uh, the leadership of WHO agrees uh, Taiwan's accession to it as uh, observer status, uh, observer. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the the second way I think the U.S. would use it uh, is that uh, the United States and its allies, as well as its partners, would uh, continue to to urge China, you know, in a diplomatic way or in some way to, to push China and to, you know, to help Taiwan. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so th- these are two ways that I might, uh, you know, uh, come into my mind that I think you have to use to help Taiwan. Okay. So probably one thing pretty ironic that I can think of is that under former U.S. President Donald Trump, America left the World Health Organization. Then under Biden, it rejoined, and now it's uh, is it contributing positively to the World Health Organization? There is really a big question mark here. But thank you very much for your analysis. That was Dr. Zhou Wenxin, Assistant Professor. With-